0: Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I am your host, Jeff Skibitzky. A little about me, I'm the founder and president of ABS, and I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome Dr. Aaron Fisher. Dr. Fisher is a licensed psychologist and a licensed board-certified behavior analyst. Moreover, he is professor and the director of the Interdisciplinary Pediatric Feeding Disorders Clinic at the University of Utah Neurobehavioral Home Program. Uh, Dr. Fisher, thank you for joining us. Will you just take a a quick moment to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work um, and maybe a little bit about how it ties into feeding, because that's really what we're going to be talking about today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Jeff. And thanks for having me on. A little bit about me. I My work really focuses on the intersection of technology and behavior and mental health services. And that that's pretty large and encompassing. But one big part of the work we do, like you mentioned, is our interdisciplinary pediatric feeding work. And we've been doing this work Predominantly focusing on telehealth applications to do this work. Um, even prior to COVID, we were really thinking about how we could get into families' homes in really intimate ways, sitting at their dinner table without actually sitting at their dinner table. And we really wanted to make sure that we were providing comprehensive access to great care, um, particularly behavior analytic care around some of these feeding um, needs that are around
0: okay, and I, I think the fact that you 're able to be in those environments, uh, being able to observe the family in their natural uh, way of life and just see what that flow is is probably so empowering and it actually leads me to i guess a story i 'd love to tell first uh, and kind of tie this into your work and um, and hear a little bit about what your perspective might be on it but Um, I I was reading a Washington Post article um, and this one was written uh, September 22nd. And it was about uh, a young girl in Massachusetts. Uh, She's 11 years old uh, and COVID really put her through the gamut. Not that she had COVID, but the structure of her life changed. Her anxiety went up. And because of this, she started refusing foods. The only food that she would eat was SpaghettiOs. Uh, Go figure, right? Um, And and we would all think kind of like Twinkies, SpaghettiOs are out there forever. Like you're always going to find a can of SpaghettiOs, but uh, she couldn't find them and her family couldn't find them, which created so much stress for everybody. Um, And this became a hot topic because it started trending. And it seemed like people all over the world, at least in the U.S., were sending over SpaghettiOs to this family. So in the situation of the girl who doesn't have the foods that she needs, has high stress, people are sending her things that maybe aren't healthy, but they're doing what's right at that moment in their mind. What is your perspective? How do you see that event
1: yeah, that's such a, a great article. And um, I'm so so glad to talk to you about that. It, it really was a really happy story, right? We're like, yeah, people in the community are coming together and they're sending all this food, um, which was so important to that family to keep their child alive. And so I think, to your point, after we stopped looking at how altruistic people were and how nice people were in those moments, it peeled back those layers and say, are we just putting out a fire still or are we actually solving a problem for this family? And I think that kind of served as a Band-Aid, right? And in not not a judgment to, to them. They were doing the best they could. But if we peel this back more and say, well, what about getting more variety in foods? What about not having to rely solely on SpaghettiOs? What if we could get other brands? What if we could get other foods? Mm-hmm. Those are going to be such huge impact beyond just what we can do to kind of Peace situations and reduce stress. Because I think if if we only think of it from that perspective, we're not building any new skills. We're not building any new foods in the repertoire. And I think for families who are working with kids who have similar feeding problems, and for us to remember that one in five kids have picky eating, like you're describing with needing to get just SpaghettiOs, how do we help those families so that they can create sustainable supports that don't rely on community support to get that food that that maybe doesn't exist. And like you had mentioned earlier with Twinkies, I think there was a period of time where Twinkies were stopped being made or they are bought out, <laughs> and there was a lull. What happens if that was the only thing someone was eating, or they only ate this kind of food, and, and we just can't get it because the company is, doesn't exist anymore? I think that that really creates problems that can have profound effects, where we see uh, weight loss, where we see other health uh, impact, and we really need to start thinking about how we can avoid those, those kind of situations for the future.
0: Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I, I agree, I think a hundred percent with what you're saying and and it takes support for a family to get past that. That I mean, as parents, the last thing we ever want to thank is that we are, are harming our own children in any way and not watching our children eat could be the scariest thing that a parent could ever have to go through is this, their parent, as their child's refusal to have any sort of dietary intake. Um, but as I was kind of going through the the article, um, one thing that kind of hit out to me um, for this young girl was the number of routines in her life in general. As that, so it feeding was the product of what we saw here. Is that the spaghettios were one component of the disorder that was causing the issue? But what is it about? autism in general, that leads some of these children to have eating disorders? Because the the young girl Ashlyn in this story would get up early in the morning, have to listen to Katy Perry's song. And then after the Katy Perry song, she'd go down and have her very specific spot to eat her very specific meal. And her whole life was planned for. And so what other components of autism lead to sometimes that high propensity of eating intervention problems?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up, because we do see this. We see about 80 to 90% of individuals who have autism spectrum disorder are impacted by some form of feeding problem, like you're describing, particularly around the food selectivity. And it's really, if you think about what the core symptoms are of autism, which are social communication problems, restricted, repetitive behaviors and interests, and some hypo or hypersensitivity to sensory situations, and you think about food and you go, foods are really sensory experience, a lot of smells and touches and taste, textures, things like that. Now combine that in with what you're saying, your routines. I like it prepared this way. The temperature is perfect. I like it when the color looks that way. And there's, there's comfort in that routine and there's comfort in, in having that predictability. Um, and food can be varying textures that can be for, for the average person Uh, maybe a little uncomfortable if you're not an adventurous eater. So I think when you have that kind of combination of all those things coming together, there's sort of like this propensity uh, that just put individuals with autism, I think, more at risk because of their sensory issues that they may experience, as well as some of the restricted behaviors and interests that I think lead to rigidity, like you you described. And for a lot of parents, the path of least resistance is to figure out ways to make this stuff uh, as easy as possible. But accidentally, what we do is we really ingrain some of those routines and we allow avoidance or maybe that texture that's a little bit too slimy or maybe too crunchy. And then over time, what we see is that cumulative effect creates this learning history. And it's really hard to break that when you do that for five years, 10 years, 15 years.
0: All of those things that you were describing there, I, I find to be more common than not, is that, I mean, as the child develops the habit, the parent develops the same coping mechanism, the same habit and same, same shopping habits, really, um, to be able to make sure that these things are continuing. Um, I do have, so <laughs> as, you were, as you were describing the foods and as you were describing the eating habits, is that I, I take a step back and I'm looking, I'm like, all right, when I get stressed, I think I, I think I default to a lot of the same foods that the, that these children are choosing, so I call it the brown diet, but it 's the breads it 's the, the chicken nuggets it 's the mac and cheese. Um, is there something unique about those specific foods that the children are defaulting to? I know that there's also some anomalies where you have children with uh, that are seeking out some some interesting tastes, like pickles or things like that but the bulk have these very generic tastes that they're defaulting to that typically aren't the most nutritious of foods. Is there any, is there any reasoning or rationale to that?
1: Yeah. You know, I, we do notice that it's, it's all the, it's everything you described, right? Pizza, all that stuff, French fries, all those same things. I think that a lot of those foods have high sugar content too. When we think about it's all white flour, it's a lot of not protein rich, not really uh, complex carbohydrates, And so they taste really good, right? And I think for most of us, you know, we can eat carbohydrates. It it feels really good. And I think those are easy because most children will eat those. Um, And the ones that you described too, they're also very accessible. You can go through a fast food location and pick up something along those lines. You can go to any restaurant. They always have the kids mac and cheese that's available. Um, And so I think it's also, again, going back to the exposure to some of these things. Um, They may have had success early on. Let's keep giving them that or is going to stick to that thing that worked because I don't want to have any uh, issue around the resistance that we get or p- problematic behaviors or avoidance.
0: Yeah. And I mean, outside of the, the dietary challenges, what, what are, and, and we will get to that topic, but what are the, the big concerns that families would be facing? I mean, what are the disruptions in their lives as, as you've talked to the families, as you've peeked into their doors during telehealth visits is that what disruptions are you seeing in the lives of these families? What's that impact like?
1: It's so interesting because the impact is, is immediate to the family. So the parent has to make a second meal every night for dinner. That's, that's extra time. And if you're raising a child with a disability, you're already under a lot more stress. You're already having to do a lot more work, probably a lot more um, emotional uh, work that you're doing too. Now, Let me, let me have you create this extra meal. That's a lot. If We think even bigger from that, what socially, if you can't go out and have a meal, because you're worried about social implications, you may be less inclined to have that support time that you would with another parent, and maybe another child. Um, And I think that can create more and more isolation. And it's really the extra work that happens around this experience that feels so commonplace and normal to so many families. We'll all sit down, we'll have our meal. But when that's disrupted, it, it kind of really jolts families. Um, and, I, and I think that they worry about how long this would last. And like you had mentioned earlier, it's it's like a direct judgment and reflection on their parenting, right? Like, I'm not sufficient because I can't feed my child. Um, and I think that's hard because food's important. We need it to survive. We need the caloric intake to have energy. Um, and I think that it's really, it really goes back to the the judgment that, that parents do and, and to be, to be easy on themselves. They're trying their best, you know, the fact that they're getting their kids to eat, it may be five foods right now, but that's right now. Where are we going to be in a month? We're we going to be in two months and how can we start adding food to that repertoire?
0: Yeah. And I would imagine that just, I mean, our our web, our webcasts and our podcasts are all about inclusion and the inaccessibility to go out and have a meal with somebody else or the inability to go into a restaurant because they're not going to have what you want is taking you out of those social opportunities as a family and as a child, is that you've already limited a lot of the the chance that you have to have those social events. Um, But I do I do want to kind of pivot back though, is that you've now mentioned caloric intake. You've mentioned some of the the dietary and nutrition issues is there something in, in specific that, that you really want for families to understand that the short term of getting your child maybe the mac and cheese because it just it's, it's what you can do right now just to make the day go by, or the SpaghettiOs and keeping that as part of the routine, is there something that, that you can add to the situation to help them to understand why that change of behavior is necessary?
1: Yes, and I think the the biggest lesson I learned is from our nutritionist who's in our interdisciplinary clinic, who I've learned so much from around these same questions that you've asked. Because yeah, it's like, well, if we're getting kids to eat, well, what does it matter? They're eating. But it's that cumulative effect of years and years and years of only being able to eat those things that you really start to see lack of, of vitamins and minerals and just building blocks that we need for our bodies to be successful. We know that children with disabilities are gonna have more issues in school. They're gonna have more issues socially with their adaptive skills. For me, I'm thinking I wanna give them the best chance possible. And I know that if I only ate pizza, mac and cheese and french fries, my, my ability to think and to do all the things effectively goes down a lot. And all I really wanna do is sleep. I'm lethargic, I'm, I feel more foggy. And so I, I try to really, work, when we work with families, try to pull in a lot of the nutrition help that we have around what is the balanced diet. And it's not that you need to eat every vegetable that exists, but could you at least get two that are kind of easy to incorporate? And so it's figuring out really realistic solutions that meet the vitamins, the minerals, the caloric intake in ways that are sustainable. And I think that's why when doing this work with feeding, it's so nice to have a consult with someone who that's their expertise, where they can look at a three-day food diary and say, well, you're missing This vitamin and this mineral. And if you can, I'd really like to see a higher proportion of protein rather than some of those simple carbohydrates. And then that really starts the conversation of well, what proteins can we start with? And are we going to start with uh, beyond burger meat? Are we going to start with real beef? Are we going to start? And and I think the great thing about food science and where we're at today is there's a lot of accessibility to to different foods. And if we notice that uh, there's food allergies, we, we have a lot more accessibility in our grocery stores to actually get some of the stuff where I would say maybe five, 10 years ago, it was slim pickings when you walked down the aisle and, and really wanted to find better and, and higher quality foods that would give that sustenance.
0: For a child with autism who's already trying to catch up on the social aspects of life, the learning abilities, being able to stay engaged at times. And then also sometimes having those physical limitations is that these dietary decisions make a bigger, more impactful path for them. The, uh, you've been doing this for quite a while, Dr. Fisher, and I mean, I, you probably have a ton of stories. What's your story of hope for families on these things?
1: Yeah, you know, we've had so many great stories. And I think that's been such such a a big piece of the rewarding part of this work is to really see that you can have success for for many families. But let me share one. And this is this is a little bit of an older um, individual that we served. This individual came into our clinic in in their early 20s. And so the reason I'm starting here is because this was a, a lifelong history of food selection and food refusal. So when we saw this individual come in, this was an individual with autism spectrum disorder um, and had um, some intellectual uh, disability as well, we found that this individual only drank chocolate milk, potato chips, and saltine crackers. And so every time they'd come in our clinic, that's all that they would bring. And that's really hard. That's a really hard diet to maintain. The nutritionist and I had some great conversations about just how this individual could could survive in a healthy way, just eating those things. And we committed to really change this. Now, let me, let me give some other context. The reason why this individual had such profound food selectivity is because this individual experienced some trauma early on um, in their life, where feeding became a traumatic experience, where a parent who was at their wits end trying to get their child to eat, uh, would try to feed them uh, essentially restraining them uh, using kind of like a mattress or something like that now as you can imagine you you can empathize with the parent who feels like I, I have to keep my child alive I have to feed them no matter what it takes but that created some long-term issues so this so we fast forward to the early 20s this individual comes into our clinic and we spent months just getting this individual to feel comfortable in our clinic and to do do this work with us and we paired uh, Disney's music with, with just time spent in there. Once we could get past that and have more of that positive interaction where they realized this was a safe place we could come and have food out. We started to introduce more and more foods. We worked with this individual for two years. It was a long time. That's a long treatment case, but we stuck with it and we slow and steady once a week did outpatient work. And by the end we were able to have brown rice, chicken, grilled chicken and broccoli as part of the diet. Now that's a substantive change from potato chips and chocolate milk and and saltine crackers. It took a long time, but in the big scheme of things, we changed the trajectory. So now moving forward, there is so much more that's available. The good news is if you can do these things early on by doing slow and steady strategies where you're making eating fun and you're having a positive environment, supporting these things, and you do that when a child's two versus 22, you can pivot and make those same improvements in a lot less time. And yeah. so what, what I'm trying to, sh- to show through this, through this story is two years for 22 years of kind of learning isn't that bad, if you ask me. Not at all. And I think we can do even quicker with, with children who have just less time learning other
0: ways to eat. It sounds like, I mean, I'm, I'm listening and I'm listening from my clinical lens as well is that uh, your your behavior analytics side is is probably shining with the particular individual is that you put in some of those pairings. So you want that relationship to food to start to change. So how do I do that? I, I build that relationship the way that I need it for it to be successful. And then you start doing a slow introduction, getting them used to the foods before you build out the meal, but you, doing it in a feeding clinic when you only have one time per week. It sounds like having an interdisciplinary team and then also a team that, whether it's the family, the stakeholders, or at-home treatment, is what's needed in a lot of these cases in order to build the opportunity and consistency. What do you see the value of taking what you're doing in the clinic and moving it into other environments with other people helping to support your plan?
1: Yeah. And I think that's what we we caught on to really early on in our feeding work that we were doing. We said, you know, having someone come in once a week outpatient for two years, great, we can have success. But what happens when you get in their space, when they're not in this weird clinic room that's supposed to like represent a, a meal setting? It doesn't feel the same. What we found is when we can get in people's homes and when parents can be engaged with the work that we're doing and maybe have two to three additional meal sessions a week, the rate of change is so much quicker and the reason why is because they're practicing this work in the real setting that these meals actually occur with the people who actually feed them those meals rather than coming to our clinic and us trying to approximate those things and so what we found is we empower caregivers and parents and families to do this work and not only does it work with maybe their child who has a disability but it also works for their other kids because like you mentioned Every, there's probably a high probability that someone else in the family also has some picky eating as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, as, as you've gone through kind of all the things that you try and, and do in your clinic and then also empowering uh, families, I mean, I, I even heard it in your story is that you're trying to be able to establish those proteins and vegetables. Okay. That's a check mark. That's one thing we want to get in there. You've made food fun. How did you do that? You've paired it with that really cool event. All right. Check mark. As you go through these check marks and you have a way to be able to introduce different techniques, what are the core pieces? If you were to say, hey, you know, family, if you can really look at these five things right now, you're setting yourself up for success before you come into the clinic, before you start real formal treatment, what would be those five things that you'd be telling the family? It sounds like I already heard two of them, I mean, what are the other three that you'd be running into?
1: Yeah, so I definitely think you know, establishing yourself as someone fun who, who can do this, do this fun work with them. Um, I think another piece of that too is, is being committed to a slow and steady approach where you think about kind of breaking feeding down into small achievable steps. And maybe they won't eat a certain food at, at start, but they might pick it up in their hand. Cool, let's start there. And let's just have a great experience holding that piece of corn and seeing what it feels like and talking about it um, and, and just enjoying the experience. Um. ultimately trying to get to the place where we're rapidly going to consumption, right? Because at the end of the day, we want them to eat that corn still, but we realize that that might not be the starting point. Another piece too is, is differentiating yourself in the, the implementation of this work. So what I mean by that is it's really easy to get frustrated. It's really easy to get stressed in those moments, um, and especially when there's refusal behavior. So really just being aware of yourself as the caregiver and saying, I'm really going to try to be super positive. I'm going to try to ignore those moments where I'm exasperated because I know if my child sees that, that's just going to create some tension there. So I think that's a hard part, but something that we can do. Um, And then really being understanding that this, this kind of, this skill doesn't happen overnight and that for it to really stick, you're going to have success. You might fall off a little bit and have a meal where you're like, that was the worst meal I've had in two weeks. That's okay. We're going to represent that same experience, that same opportunity. We're going to keep coming back and we're going to keep being positive. I think that persistence, I think that slow and steady approach and being being positive overall is really going to set the stage for all the other work that maybe you would get if you come into a clinic like ours, where we're going to really assess and, and hone in on some more of those uh, nuanced uh, problems that are, are occurring.
0: Yeah, I think even having those general tips that you just gave right there are going to empower so many different families. Um because I don't think people typically know where to start. And and maybe maybe that's where we where we wrap up is I mean, if you are if you're hearing from a family that they're having these challenges or your own child is having these difficulties, who do they turn to? Who do they talk to? Who, how do they get to the resources? I mean, there's there's one feeding clinic, but there's, uh, there's gotta be other resources the, and throughout the nation, like how do they access this?
1: Yeah. You know, there's some great resources online. Um, feeding matters is a, like a parent led organization that has some great resources for clinics across the country. And I, and I believe ours is included in that. Um, but there are some great clinics all over the U S that, that do this work. Um, and some that do even more intensive work than what we're able to do in our, in our outpatient clinic. But I would really encourage you to, as parents, to, to talk to your pediatricians, but understand that, that maybe you have to go beyond the pediatrician, and that the pediatrician might say, they'll they just grow out of this. What we find is that's not true. They don't just grow out of these things, and there has to be intentional um, supports to actually get, get children through these things, and families at that. Um, so I think really using your resources, also reaching out to educators. Um, there are some great Uh, resources in schools, occupational therapists, speech and language pathologists, and they may not be able to provide those services in the educational context, but they may have a close colleague or be aware of a clinic in the community and could could give that warm handoff and at least uh, initiate some of the the first steps to get you in that place. Because I know for me as a parent myself, some of the hardest part is just calling those people up and, and getting that first visit scheduled. And so having that support to transition, I think can be so critical.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. I, I think that what you have laid as an outline right now is going to bring about a lot of good discussion, but it's, it's going to give the arrow to families on how to start moving through the process. So we appreciate the fact that you're able to come on today and share some of your knowledge.
1: Jeff, thanks so much for inviting me to come on. It's, it's really my pleasure. And I'm just so excited that more families will be able to hear this podcast and learn about some strategies that hopefully can benefit them and their, their children.
0: All right. Thank you. Uh, Another great opportunity to talk with a specialist who really can give us that key information. Um, When you sit back and you look at that initial story, you hear a, a child that was really struggling. You hear a community that came around that child to help find the SpaghettiOs in this particular case. Um, What we learned, though, is that there's multifacets to this. We learned today, you know, where this problem stems from, whether it's the sensory issues, the anxiety, Um, you're looking at this routine that the child was going through. All of these are factors that exist for a lot of children with autism that create feeding problems. And Dr. Fisher was able to highlight that and to put in perspective what it means if we don't provide the appropriate treatment if we don't give the child the chance to get the nutrition they need his story of being able to go from uh 20 years of one routine of a very restricted diet and putting in the time of two years to really work on it and being successful and growing the amount of nutrition you get should be empowering it it should give us all an indicator that this change is possible But once again, uh, thank you so much uh, for your time today on our podcast, and we hope to bring a little bit more of autism in the real world back again next week. Thanks.